Hi, it's Gary from the Investment Cuddle. Just thought I'd let you know we've split this subject of portfolio structure and construction into two parts, basically because Philip and Keith were talking for too long. But I think also because there we thought there was enough content in here that we could have talked for an hour or more. So to try and keep it to our regular sort of 25-minute to 30-minute podcast, we've split this into two. So this month is we've given you part one of that conversation, and we'll follow that up with part two next month. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you can let us know what you think, rate and review us on your chosen platform, that would be great. And I'll let the guys get on with the podcast. Thanks very much. Welcome to the Investment Cuddle, episode 16. And today I'm here with Philip and Keith. And we're going to talk about portfolio structure, perhaps try and bring out a little bit on construction as well. So we're going to let Philip kick us off with looking at portfolio structures. The first time I'd ever come across the 60-40 rule, and this was like where you hold, say, 60% equities and shares and 40% bonds, um, was a book called The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. He was a faint, and the reason I've heard of him was it, it was a book that um, Warren Buffett keeps referring to as where it came from, his style of investing is came from. Rationale effectively was bonds, they behave differently to shares. With shares, your opportunities for profit are high, but your opportunities for loss quite high as well. Whereas when you look at bonds, because they pay a fixed amount of income and most of them are asset backed to some degree, your losses are capped, but your your possibility for a lot of growth is very minimal. So therefore, they also tend to behave differently in the business cycles. So the rationale was you mix something that was quite volatile but can grow a lot with something that is less volatile but unlikely to lose a lot to make you a balanced portfolio that means that you don't scare yourself that you're going to lose all your money and prevent you from not investing. That was roughly the rationale, and what they and it generally was mixing shares with bonds. Now you could say, to some degree, you could do the same thing with different types of shares, not just share, uh, within share classes, because there's lots of different types of companies out there. Those that are just growth, those that are more income related, and those that are more like utilities, where they just pay mainly income, but they're not really going to grow. And the rationale was you either drip feed it every month. So you buy a, and you basically buy a certain amount of stocks and a certain amount of bonds every month if you can. Or the other one would be once a year, you rebalance it back to 60-40. The rationale being when one does really, really well, it forces you to sell high and buy low of the other one. Psychologically, you tend to sell low and buy high. So it's just another method to try and stop that happening. Now, when you look at for the last 10 years, bonds haven't behaved like they used to behave over the last 100 years or so. So there is some debate about whether that's the right portfolio construction. But having a portfolio construction is still generally quite good. When you're looking at any sort of collective investment vehicle, whether it's a unit trust or an investment trust or a tracker, you probably don't want exposure to one single bond or one single share. You want a mix of shares, so you reduce the risk 
any one bond or any one company's shares goes to zero. Right. So when you talk about 60-40 then, where does the the story about ages come in where you're looked at, you know, you've got 60% bonds at the age of 60 and 40% equities and you take your age and whatever your age is, that's the percentage of bonds you should have in. Does that does that fit with that description you've given or is this just a complete fallacy? I don't know where that one's come from. It might do. and It might refer more to the American market where they tend to invest. Your investments are up to you. You tend to do it yourself. I've not come across that one so much. What I've come across is in the UK when it comes to pension investing, where you're doing divine contribution pension scheme, you put into it and your co- uh, company employer puts money into it, but they don't guarantee what comes out of it. So his- until fairly recently in the UK, with those sort of pension schemes, you had to buy an annuity when you got to retirement age. You had no option about managing it yourself once you're in retirement. So then a the rationale was there was, as you're getting closer and closer to retirement age, have less and less percentage of the high risk, high volatility assets, and you want to move to the lower volatility assets, purely because once you get to retirement age, you're forced to buy an annuity and you don't want to suffer a big loss at that moment. So generally, you historically, you went from 10 years before your retirement age, you started having like a, a step change where every, every year, another 10% of the shares were converted into bonds or other high volatile assets were converted into low volatile assets like bonds. So by the time you had one year before you bought your annuity, you were almost entirely into bonds. Now, that may not be quite as useful anymore because in certainly in the UK now, you're allowed to manage your own money and do drawdown, but that's where I think it came from. Right, okay. Yeah, I think it just comes back to your, you know, when you tell about risk, Obviously, if you've got a lower proportion of bonds when you're younger, but you're taking more risk, but at a younger age, you've got a better opportunity. You should be doing that, essentially, because you've got time on your side and you should take the growth, shouldn't you? Yes, you've got more time to recover from any blips because relatively, the amount it drops is still relatively small compared to the amount of money you keep putting into it each year. So that was my thinking, I guess, in terms of the, the bits I'd, I'd heard. I think it's InvestTalk that talk a lot about that. Here's the thing, Phil. If bonds are near zero, does that mean, let's say, you might take, instead of taking money out of stocks and allocating to bonds, you might take money out of stocks and allocate to housing? Well, this is where, well, this is the thing where you're trying to say, explain it. The, the analogy was originally, you're taking it from the most risky things, the volatile things, into the things that are less and less volatile to the point where just before you retire, it's all non-volatile things. Because once you buy an annuity, that's it. That's where it came from. Now, whether you're saying it's bonds or property or crypto, that was the rationale behind it originally. And that's the rationale quite a lot of people give. Unless you're doing drawdown and you're actively managing it, if you're going to buy an annuity, the the rational approach there for those who can't take risk because it just scares the bejesus out of them is to buy bonds. But it isn't volatility, just one part of the puzzle, isn't it income that's really the, no. the key? You you want no. to be buying... Not in this one, no, because you're swapping it. Because if you're buying an annuity, guess what annuities are just made of? Bonds. So you're swapping a bond-based product with another bond-based product. So therefore, the risks of big losses because the volatility is small. And that's, that's the analogy, and that's where quite a lot of that came from. Now, is that relevant anymore? Is that the right approach? It's a different question. 
should I be swapping my bond for something else because of zero interest rates? That's a different question. Rationale is I'm, I, I'm swapping into an asset which has very low volatility. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying, that is volatility really the key issue or is it more about income? It is when you're just about to lock yourself into a one-time-only contract. With an annuity, that's it. The day you bought it, it doesn't matter if it goes up, double. If your underlying assets double or halve, it's irrelevant. You can never get out of that annuity. It's a life, it's a life insurance policy. So the, what you don't want is the day before you go to buy your annuity, market crash. You can't get a, you can't recover from. But you know, with with when you buy a bond, you know the income that it will generate. You provide less so solvent, yeah. Yeah. But what you're doing is activities where they're giving you a promise, and it's based on per per ten thousand pounds or a hundred thousand pounds, you get X amount of income. So I'll probably read. I don't know per hundred thousand pounds constant fixed income annuity, you probably get five uh, five thousand pounds. If you want an inflation back one, you'll probably get to you like two thousand pounds per hundred thousand pounds if you're lucky. But that's what you're doing. You're you're going into that risk. So what you don't want is your pot to suddenly lose twenty five percent six weeks before you buy your annuity because the only thing you can do is wait and keep go back to work that's where that came from that's what that was trying to stop that sort of risk because that scares the bejesus out of most people and that puts them totally off investing period so although your comment is quite rational and quite logical and what you're asking it's not necessarily what people think about if you're going to buy annuity if you're going to do life pension drawdown and actively manage your own investments while you draw your income down then your question is totally valid. I'm genuinely trying to get my head around that that challenge as you approach retirement, let's say, because I I, I thought it was I, I thought much like we've spoken about with with dividends, where you you're not so worried about the price of the stock; it's about the income that it is generating based on the price that you paid. That's why I'm I'm there. I'm thinking well. You're talking about minimizing volatility. And I'm going, well, in that respect, when we were talking about dividends, we were saying we're not bothered about the volatility of the price. We're bothered about what we bought in at and, and whether they're still paying dividend. To put it in perspective, though, the people that worry about that and manage that part themselves is probably less than 1% of the entire population. That's not how most people think about it. It's not how most people manage it. That is something totally new, and as far as I'm aware, no investment manager offers that sort of advice because that's not that's counter to the mm-hmm. advice from the regulators. So that's where you're totally off piste as far as regulators are concerned. That's why I'm doing it. But if you were retiring, and you know, somebody said, "Right, we'll guarantee you X percent return on this, but we can't guarantee that there'll be any." what equity will be left in it, but we'll guarantee an X percent return well, This is the forever. problem. If you're doing annuities, the regulator won't allow you to have much shares. It's got to be bonds. You're not allowed to have much shares. You might have maybe 5%, 10% max shares. The rest have to be bonds by law. That's because historically the people that are selling it, they don't want them to blow up. Bonds yeah. are guaranteed, much more guaranteed, because even if, they, if you're buying senior credit, even when you go under, it's a mortgage product. You just take possession of the property. That's why the regulators force it down that route. So if you're doing like what I and mean, Gary are talking about, going, yeah, I want to buy the shares and just live off them, like, that's not really allowed in the mainstream market because that's considered too risky by the regulator. 
to their risk that they have to bail you out. Yeah. That's a you could have issue. dividends and dividends and price go down at the same time, and they do, yeah. yeah. And they can just be cancelled for decades. That's where it's different, where most people don't think like that because you can only really do that strategy if you're managing it yourself. It got to be nimble, bit of twinkle toes. Not necessarily. You've got to know what you're buying because there are products out there that will do a very good job at that strategy. Certain investment trusts have not cut a dividend in 70 years. Haven't always grown it every year, but they've grown it on, on, on average almost every year. Well, that's a very different style, Phil, isn't it? Yeah, and that's going to say that that's a very unique, and you can only really do that when you're managing it yourself. Yeah, it's a very different style. You know, it's it's the Helen Pridham from Interactive Investor. She's got articles which she's done for a good few years now where they're talking about investment trusts. So the one I was just looking at was 11 investment trusts for a £10,000 annual income. And what she's done is she's constructed a quarter of a million pound portfolio. And over the last few years, they've tweaked it every year. Yeah, brought one in, sold one. And it's really interesting because the idea is even if the capital goes down. Yeah, the, but the income is pretty stable and grows. Ideally, yes. And what, but what they're trying to do there is saying, well, you know, there's a way of getting a 10 grand in- income if you've got quarter of a million quid in a relatively stable environment. But you can't get too hung up about whether your capital's worth 225 or 275. Because actually, in the grand scheme of things, you're not spending that money. If it's worth 275, you're still getting the same income. If it's worth 225, same you're still getting the same income. Pretty much. Yeah. To do the same with bonds, you probably need half a million. Yeah, it's a completely different animal. But I just like the way she's been consistent. I think she's been putting them out. I mean, this one I was just looking at is 4th of Feb 2020. I think it's been about then each year for probably three years that I've been seeing those articles. And it just gives you that sense that you can construct something like that. And it will, it, it, it's not completely zero maintenance, but it's low enough maintenance that you only have to look at it once a year. Yeah. So you might want to look at it quarterly or whatever, but you're probably not making changes any more than once a year. So, you know, one one bought, one sold, or two two sold, one one bought, whatever, whatever you're doing. But it's not much churn in the portfolio either because you've already bought it. It's there. So I like that. I think. Her- yeah, I remember reading those for the last couple of years, and they're quite interesting. But you're right, and you have to get your head out going, forget about the capital. Or the other mm. approach is you take like um, Terry Smith, which is, yeah, you invest it with someone who does the capital growth like Terry, and you sell shares, and you live off the shares you sold. Yeah, like he's got people that do that, do doesn't that, he? Yeah. When he's done his um, AGM, he said, you know, I can't remember whether it was his mother one of the guys on the panel's mothers, it might have been both actually, but they, he was saying that they do that style of investing with Terry, which is, you know, they, they have a call off a drawdown, if you want to call it a drawdown, off that capital by selling units. And that's quite a common approach. So they're the sort of approaches you can, they're the extreme approaches you can take if you're doing a drawdown. You don't buy an annuity. Yeah. You somehow live off the, you manage the income yourself. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to, have you guys caught the Investors Chronicle podcast, the Phil Oakley one? I think they've called it Alpha now. They've had a few different names of what they've been doing over the last year. But I mean, I really like Phil Oakley and the way, way he looks at things. But he was saying that if you look at Terry in, from inception, the portfolio has grown by more than 400% since 2010, which is insane, really, when you think about yeah. it. You know, when you talk about portfolio construction, when we talk about, you know, do you go bonds or whatever? Well, what if you just put your money with Terry? You're not going to spend 400% return, are you? Well, you'd have to try some, yeah. Well, you'd have to go some to spend 400% of your return and... I'll give it a nudge. 
I'm sure Captain Jack could do it on rum. Well, yes, yeah, so I was thinking 400% on £4.50 doesn't get you very far, does it, I guess? I suppose that's my that was my thinking. I said, if I put £4.50 with him, where would I be in 2020? Probably not very <laughs> further along. But Yeah, sorry, without going down the rabbit hole, I was just thinking about the one fund mentality. When you talk about going and buying annuity or you are looking at you know, a predominantly heavy bond portfolio and you could be going down a bond fund route, Lots of people go down the one fund route. So, you know, the one fund that will remain nameless is still causing people grief. But that's it. You know, Terry would have given you that return. He probably has blown, you know, you talk about the 11 investment trusts returning 10 grand, even over that 10 year period. If you'd gone back to 2010, which is not fair on Helen's work because she hasn't gone back that far. But if you took that as an average response or average performance per year, on the investment trusts with the return of 10 grand a year, even if you'd reinvested it, which kind of breaks the principle because it was all for income, but even if you'd reinvested it, would you have got anywhere near Terry? I don't think you would. I don't think you could beat the US market. And that's possibly the reason why he, what he bought is I don't care too much about what the dividend is today. It might only be 1%, the fact that it's going to be twice as big in five years' time. Now, the dividend yield might still be 1% in five years' time because the shares have gone up as well as the dividend going up. He buys growth companies, whereas others, say like Murray International, they're looking, I need a company that yields 3.5%. So they're not going to double in value. They're not going to double their income in five years' time. They'll go up maybe 5% every year, but they're not going to like double in five years their income stream. No, I, I guess that's it. You, you, you're going to have to have gone some to be being in the US market, being in the right companies, being uh, in pounds whilst your investments are in dollars, you know, he's also taken that benefit. Pound's still down against the dollar relative to where it was before the thing that remained nameless is mentioned. So I just, you know, from my point of view, there are some different options, but then you come back to the whole conversation of where are you where are you diversifying? Terry's diversifying in good companies. If he's just buying good companies and one, you know, one's a pizza outlet and one's a, you know, a computer software company, isn't that one fund diverse enough anyway? Yeah, it's got a minimum of 20 shares in it. So individual stock going belly up is quite low. When you start getting to 100 shares, you might as well just bought the index. Come to a point where you need to be constrained to really show a difference because if you have too many shares, you're just a closet tracker. Well, yeah, and how many funds has Terry got in terms of the ones he declares? About 27, isn't it? Yeah, but he'll, de- he'll declare the top 10, but he'll t- declare the total number of companies he owns. But he may not give you all the percentages of all of them, except in the annual prospectus. But it's around about 25 to 27 in total shares, which for a global portfolio, yeah. that's about right. You mean, probability any one of those shares go is quite limited. It's not like he's in the investment, the small company's investment capital end where you expect half of the companies to go bust yeah and, and i think if you look at it's one thing i hadn't quite clocked with fundsmith is if you go back to the, the thing we were talking about the other day about the three to five percent of any stock no more than 15 percent of any sector now okay i'm not sure where he is on sectors but that one fund you know that three to five percent that's your that's your 20 to 30 stocks isn't it most of the shares he buys, they're roughly, they start off roughly equal weighting and some grow faster than others. But they're not massively like there's two, th- 20% in there. They're all roughly six, fives, 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 and threes. So, yeah, so I think from that point of view, you know, when you look at that, you're turning around and saying you, you've got the risk that 
single fund will blow up, which we've seen. But actually, the construction of some of these funds is actually not a million miles away from a balanced portfolio. <laughs> you know, it's different though because why Woodford blew up was because of the, the the large amount of unlisted shares that can't be got rid of. That's why he blew up. He just had a fund full of liquid shares. Yeah, he would have lost a lot of money. A lot of people would have pulled their money out, but it wouldn't have blown up. Right. So is that a liquidity issue then, more than anything else? Well, no, because it, it was a liquidity issue that made it blow up. Okay, you could underperform for 10 years and you could still pull your money out. So he could still underperform like Woodford done. But providing he doesn't have unlisted, lots of un- small unlisted shares in there, making up a very large percentage, you haven't got the, um, the panic situation where the first guys to pull their money out actually get their money out before they run out of things they can sell. So, yeah, so that takes me back to a diversification. You know, you've basically got a situation where if you're buying Terry and lots of other funds, you know, you end up running the risk of being too diverse. And then, you know, we've had this conversation before. You're better off buying an index. But if you're doing one global income, you could sit there and go, that fund does Europe, that fund does America, that one does emerging markets. Or you can try and find a one fund fits all. Yeah, you're not talking about Terry, are you, in that instance? Because he doesn't do income. But as a growth bit, he says, out of everything in the world... At the moment, he says, America's where the growth is. That's why I'm buying. I don't see any growth in the other areas. That's why there's very little in Europe and very little UK. He hasn't touched China, I think. Why? When you look at his principle of good companies, he'll, he'll work off the balance sheets, won't he? And he needs to have a look at those in detail. I'll be happy with them. Yeah, if I can't believe the financial prospectus, I don't touch it. Yeah, true. So you've got the diversification. Too much just means you should go down it with a, with a cheap, cheap tracker. Too little diversification is very very high risk right yeah the other ones you can go different assets have different volatilities at different times in the business cycle that's another reason to try and smooth it out by buying them so you mix terry's growth with american tech with bonds maybe or maybe other things because they don't all go up and down necessarily to try and minimize the amount they go up and down in unison and that's where the bonds used to come in because historically the bonds used to play a totally opposite to stocks they don't for the last 10 years but before then that was why you bought bonds because when the stock market crashed they didn't just protect your wealth they grew a bit yeah but i mean i i would have said last year when we had the stock market crash bonds that i was looking at were pretty stable well that's when you get so low interest rates there's not much to move and that's why it didn't work anymore but that's where the analogy came from before was it used to be yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get as much as you lost in your stocks, but they stabilise your portfolio's losses. Yeah. So I think the only other thing I was going to suggest, we have a quick chat through, and I don't know how much you guys know about this, but the the Artemis Dragon portfolio, are we familiar with this? I thought you were referring to the paper, The Hawk and the Serpent. Well, it's, it's essentially that, Keith, but I think they, the dragon is not the serpent and the hawk and <laughs> all this other stuff. It's all a bit crazy, but you know, compared to what Philip's already described about, and I'm, and this is the mean U.S. pension portfolio, not the you know not not UK. So seventy three percent is equity linked, twenty one percent is fixed income, and seven percent is cash. Is that right? That gives you one hundred and one percent. That doesn't quite make sense, does it? Yeah, seventy three plus seven is eighty, isn't it? Plus twenty one is one hundred and one. Anyway. <laughs> The point being that it's mostly equities. 
so it says a traditional pension portfolio is is dom- predominantly seventy three percent equity assets, twenty one percent fixed income. So I'm guess you can have whatever's left in cash. But the dragon portfolio is uh not quite evenly split, but pretty much evenly split between equities, fixed income, gold, commodities. And it says long volume, long vol. Sorry, that's volatility, isn't it? Long volatility. Sorry, I'm just trying to get their acronyms against what's actually that. So in that sense, I think the principle here is that that's the sort of portfolio that's going to be very robust. It might not be stunning on the growth side, but it will it will preserve, at least I think this is the under- my understanding, is that balance of portfolio, the dragon portfolio that Artemis is talking about is, that's there to preserve wealth as much as it's there to grow your assets because it's about preserving wealth and not losing your shirt, which you don't want to do anyway in a in a downturn, which is why I guess you've traditionally headed for bonds in a 60-40 portfolio. But do we see any downsides on that portfolio? So it probably depends on whether you want, you're in a growth phase or a wealth preservation phase. So it depends on how much money you've got at that point. And this is probably a big thing to talk about for most people when they talk about their pensions. When they start off, you've got virtually nothing in your pension pot. You need it to grow. You can afford to take quite a lot of risk because the pot is very small and it's dominated by the amount that you're putting in every month or every year relative to how much it can fall by. When you're coming up to, say, a couple of years before you retire, you're in the opposite position. You're in wealth preservation because the only op- if you have a big correction, and lose a lot of money. The only op, you only have really two options, which is delay your retirement and keep working and refill the hole. And sometimes that can be that could be another ten years to refill that hole, or except you're going to have a big loss and you're not going to have that much income. So it's one of the things that you can do. But when you listen to the investment industry, they'll tend to say, ask you these questions about how risk, how risky are you, and you tend to come out that you're not very risky, and therefore. With your age, I've seen plenty of people that are in their 20s taking almost no risk because they're scared of losing money when it's actually they're going, you haven't got much to lose. So you shouldn't be that scared of losing it, not to the degree that they actually are scared. Yeah, I guess it's all perspective, isn't it? But but it's a fair point in the fact that if if you've not got much, you want to grow it. If you've already made your money, you definitely do not want to see that disappear away on supposed let's say um speculative investments you want to be able to maintain that wealth and that you know the traditional conservative approach that you were talking about earlier on i was just looking at investopedia and they are talking about conservative portfolios at sort of 70 75 percent fixed securities so that'd be your bonds wouldn't it and then only 15 20 percent equities obviously balance cash Whereas moderately aggressive portfolio, you're talking 30, 40% fixed securities and 50 to 55% equities. So that's kind of getting more to your 60, 40, but the other way around, you could argue. So you've got more equities. So that would probably work when you're a bit younger. But the interesting thing, I think, about the, the so called 100 year portfolio with that is, you know, having that balance across those five areas, and I don't think we'll go into what long volatility is right now because <laughs> that's another rabbit hole. But having that balance against volatility, gold, commodities, 
and fixed income and equities, what you're really doing is actually only 40 percent, 40, 45 percent of your portfolio is equities and, and fixed income. The 60 percent is other stuff. And, you know, let's say gold's a store of value. Commodities are a store of value. Could I get away with that? Maybe. Um, so you've got two hedges against inflation there, potentially, and one against volatility in the market. So I quite like that. But as you said, you'd probably want a fairly sizable pot and be quite brave to be owning. People talk about five to 10% gold, not 20% gold typically in a portfolio. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were if you took something like Alan Pridham from the Interactive Investors articles, if you took that quarter of a million and did this with it, you know, and again, if you looked at it over the Terry Smith period, the Fundsmith period, you could compare Terry Smith, the investment trust portfolio for income, and then this dragon portfolio and see how they looked. Mm, that would be very interesting, those. I mean, that we can probably do it for the last four years. But the interesting thing is if you go back 10 years or longer, because that's when you really mm. see differences. Yeah, absolutely. One will run away with itself. It's a bit like the hare and the tortoise. Uh, for example, like growth, they go through period, growth does really well. And then you go through periods, maybe five, six years of growth does nothing and other things catch back up. And so when you're looking at over multiple business cycles, like 100 years, you actually go, well, actually, yeah, it wasn't that much difference in growth and income and value. The problem is, though, any, if you're in certain decades, one just ran away with it and then the others didn't do anything. But then the other one did nothing for two decades. But I think that's it, isn't it? If I was if I was a betting person, which I'm not, but if I was, I'd be really interested to see how that more evenly balanced portfolio works against yeah. a Terry. But actually, what I'd probably want, being really selfish, is I'd want my investment trust portfolio to give me some income, Terry to give me the growth, and the dragon to give me security. <laughs> and so I shall say thank you to Philip and Keith. And we'll see you next time. This programme has been presented for information and educational purposes only. None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities, nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.